There is a church in Crystal Lake, Illinois that I am familiar with, that I've had some friends attend. Pastor Steve Yescheck uh, in that church lost his sister Judy after a five-year battle with cancer. Uh, as Steve describes her, she was a woman who was a party animal, a big drinker, and a self-contented with a self-contented lifestyle. She was somebody that everyone loved because she exuded excitement and a thrill for life. And when Steve would try to share Jesus with her over the years, she would laugh it off and uh, just kept partying. But all that changed when she turned 44. Her world caved in when she found out that she had breast cancer. Then she later learned her husband had cancer. And as if that wasn't enough, she soon found out that her husband was having an affair. And he subsequently announced to her that he no longer loved her and he left her. It was in that context that she began to ask some very serious questions about eternity and the purpose of life. And she soon trusted Christ as her savior. From that time until her death, Jesus, the word of God, uh, the kingdom of God, these were primary upon her heart and her mind as she approached those things and ran after those things uh, with her remaining time. With the same gusto that she lived her life as an unbeliever was how she lived her life as a follower of Christ, not missing an opportunity to share her story with others. She boldly shared her faith, did this after surgery, after surgery, praying for miraculous healing from God. And God moved in a very powerful way through her, but not necessarily through a healing on earth, but instead did a greater miracle of people around her coming to Christ. And as she struggled near the end of her life for every breath, she talked the hospital into, her, into letting her go about 10 days before her death because she wanted to be baptized and publicly proclaim Christ as her Savior. So she invited everybody she knew to her baptismal service. And under the Spirit's anointing, she powerfully shared her testimony. Her 84-year-old father came to Christ, along with her ex-husband coming to Christ, along with a number of nieces, a college roommate who was a New Age cultist. She had an aunt, a sister, and others who came to Christ at her baptismal service. Ten days later, she died. And even still, more people came to know the Savior. When Steve, Pastor Steve, read the message that she wrote for her funeral, 100 people came to know Christ at her funeral. What we see is God's ability to work even in the middle of sickness, in the middle of circumstances that we don't necessarily ask for, and he points people to the gospel. And we see how one powerful testimony from one changed life can influence people 
You know, it's fine to have intellectual arguments to answer the objections that people have against God, against Christ and, and the gospel. But there is something about a changed life that is hard to argue with, right? I mean, how do you argue with a person in front of you who bears testimony of the change that Jesus has made in them? Now, I'm not just talking about, you know, I quit smoking crack. I'm talking about a person who is on their knees before Christ, admits their sin, and clings to Christ and him alone for salvation, and that change that happens from the inside out. That is a powerful thing. And that's what we see happening with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul's approach with his religious critics, at least here in Acts 22, was to share his story. Now, you remember it was these very people, the religious Jews, the, the elites, and then their followers, who were trying to kill Paul because they falsely accused him of, of bringing a person within a restricted part of the temple. And Paul could have addressed every one of those points. He didn't do that. Instead, he just shared from his own life. And, and normally, that would be very powerful. We're going to see how it ended up for Paul later. So let's all stand as we look for Acts 22 and see what God has for us here. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished." As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told all that is appointed for you to do. Next slide, please. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand of those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. 
And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And so at the end of this service, I'm going to be asking for some of you to share your story about how God has changed your life, just like Paul did here. And so I want to tell you beforehand, let the Holy Spirit prepare your own heart to encourage the saints. And so, Father, we entreat you once again to ask you to take your word and transform our lives. May they just not be some regular meeting, but may your spirit convict those who need it of sin and bring them to salvation. And may your spirit encourage the saints that they would be bold in their witness that they would love well those around them, and that we might see a great harvest. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers and journeyed toward Damascus to take those who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished." So again, as I've already mentioned, Paul's defense was not a point-by-point argument against the false charge of bringing in a Gentile into a restricted zone of the temple. His defense was, look at my life. It demonstrates a genuine commitment that I've had to Judaism my whole life, and then a genuine conversion to Christ, which was about 20 years before Acts 22, when he was on the road to Damascus. Paul speaks in Aramaic. It was a Hebrew dialect to the Jews. The Jews learned this language while under the control of the Persian Empire. After speaking Greek to the Roman commander, Paul commands the attention of the Jews by speaking their language. Paul then lets them know that he was born in a well-known educational center of Tarsus, and at some point, his family moved to Jerusalem, and it was there that he studied under Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel was a most respected rabbi. He's quoted in the Mishnah, which is kind of a, a running commentary of the Jewish law, of the oral law. Gamaliel was the head of the school of Hillel, which propagated the most popular version of Judaism. So what what he's doing here, he's establishing his ethnic identity and his educational pedigree to demonstrate his Jewish credibility. And when he says he was being zealous for God, the zeal was expressed in meticulous observance of the law as handed down by God the religious fathers. Paul then makes the case that his zeal even extended to the point of his willingness to jail and kill Christians for the sake of Judaism. 
He was instructed to do this by the religious leaders of Judaism, namely the Sanhedrin and the high priest. Now, there's a lot that could be said here regarding when religion does evil, and certainly we see it there. Any religion that asks people to do harm to another human being like this is indeed doing evil. The present leaders Paul is speaking to, they knew all this. But it's funny how the facts have a way of being repressed, especially when we have evil on our mind. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. Paul now appeals to empirical evidence as he gives testimony of seeing a light, which, by the way, was brighter than any, even the noonday light because it was in the middle of the day that this happened. And he heard a voice from heaven. The voice holds Paul accountable to his murdering of the saints. And Jesus lets him know that when you're doing that, you're attacking me, the Son of God, by those acts. And as a result, Paul could do nothing but fall to the ground in abject spiritual poverty. Now listen, you have a religious man perhaps one of the most religious Jews, uh, meticulous in his keeping of the law that we've ever known. And yet he's in abject spiritual poverty. Did not really know God. What does that say about religious systems? It doesn't have to be one that purposely tries to move people away from the living God. It could be even a good one, but we still don't know Jesus. Knowing Jesus and being part of a religious system are two different things. And we certainly see that in the life of Paul. I want you to also notice that this is not a private event, but it is witnessed by others with Paul. Many times we are asked to believe certain things. You know, a person says they had a vision or some kind of miracle that nobody else can attest to. I would submit to you that Christianity is a different bird, that the miracles of Jesus and even this miracle of the Apostle Paul were witnessed by other people, and they could attest that this took place. I mean, if somebody comes to me and says, you know, I had a vision in my closet, and God you know, wants you to give me 500 bucks, and we're going to start this thing, and I wait, 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 wait. Uh, you're the only one that heard this, right? I'm going to probably say, you need to take your pills and then come at me maybe in another month and you know, we can talk. But if there are multiple people that hear such a thing, you know, that has you know, more credibility. 
And the point is that with Jesus Christ and all the miracles that he did and the resurrection, you had literally hundreds of people that witnessed these things. I had a student uh, just a couple weeks ago that, you know, talked about, you know, these fairy tales of miracles. And I said, well, certainly I believe that you could and should have a religious skepticism. Uh, There's nothing wrong with that. Out of the box, I'm not going to believe every claim. But it's different when you have eyewitness testimony and you have bibliographical evidence that attests to what we're reading today is accurate to what was originally written. That's a different bird. You can't just categorically reject anything religious without first looking at the facts. And with Christianity, we are given a faith that squares with the facts. And so we can appreciate that. But the Jews at this point were dealing with cognitive dissonance in their own heads as Paul identified this voice as that of Jesus Christ. Now, this is the one whom they have rejected. Jesus Christ was the Messiah, and they said, no, we don't want that kind of Messiah. And so here's Paul saying, wait, wait, you're saying you heard a voice from heaven and it was Jesus? And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him and to everyone of what you've seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So Paul... What he does is he appeals to a character witness, Ananias. For Ananias was a devout observer of the law. And, of course, he was held in high esteem by the Jewish community. And this same man, Ananias, attested to Paul being called by God. And and he told Paul that you are to know and to do the will of God. You're to see and hear the voice of Christ and then witness to everyone about him. Now, that word everyone is packed with meaning that at that second, the Jews didn't quite understand, but they would at the later portion of our passage. But he meant Gentiles. They didn't put two and two together quite yet, but they would later. But does this not really sum up what our life is about. To see and hear the work of Christ. And we can see it, and we have the advantage of having the Gospels, of having the written word of God for us. And then to testify of what he's done in our life, the change that he has made. Give me a more supreme calling than that in this life. It's not that Paul is somebody unique in that particular aspect because we're all to share our story of what he's done. And notice, again, Ananias says, I want you to tell everyone. Ananias then tells Paul to be baptized and not to wait to be identified with Christ. And perhaps there are some of you here that you've made this proclamation of Christ but you've not yet done the public proclamation 
of identifying with his death, burial, and resurrection in baptism. Now, we do it by immersion. But if you haven't done that, what are you waiting on? I like that question, all right? What are you waiting on? Do it, all right? Are you, are you afraid? Are you ashamed? Follow Christ. Now, some try to use verse 16 as a proof text for baptism being a prerequisite for salvation. A deeper dive into the Greek reveals that washing away of sins can just as well be attached to the phrase calling on his name, meaning salvation does not come through baptism, but when we call on the name of Jesus. And let me submit to you, again, we need to have a a very specific target of what the gospel is and what salvation is. There is no salvation by us picking up ourselves by our own bootstraps. There is no salvation by us just quitting some previous behavior or even quitting some false system of belief and then going to a Christian church. Trust me, that is not salvation, even though it might be beneficial. Salvation is coming when, just like Paul, we realize that it's Jesus calling us. We acknowledge our sin before a holy God, and we acknowledge that the only way that our sin can be forgiven is by committing our life to Jesus and believing that his sacrifice on the cross is sufficient for our sin. Any other explanation for the change is not sufficient. It's only Jesus Christ. And so all the talk in our story about how we changed our life or, you know, I've always grown up with religion without that encounter with Jesus is insufficient. Now, I'm not here to have all of you question your salvation experience, but I'm here to describe very specifically what it means. And it'll be between you and the Holy Spirit to determine whether that was a genuine experience or not. So, salvation did not come through baptism, but when he called on Jesus. In addition, the original account of Paul's conversion in Acts 9, we read plainly that Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit before he was baptized. And there's much discussion about in Acts 9 about when did Paul actually come to faith? Was it, you know, when he was blinded by the light or whatever? It doesn't matter at what, you know, second it happened. We know that it happened because he was filled with the Spirit. Nobody's filled with the Spirit as a non-believer, so he, he would have had to have come to Christ before that. That's important to know. We read in this passage, so Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So we know that before that time then, he knew the Lord. The conversion had taken place. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. So clearly, the baptism took place after his conversion. That we know for sure. 
Verse 17, when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. In Acts 9, 29 and 30, we read that after his conversion, Paul was in Jerusalem. And the believers there warned him that there were Jews in that town that wanted to kill him and that he should leave. So Paul adds a further detail that we didn't know when we read Acts 9. Further detail of the story that he'd had a vision confirming their advice. And the reason was because they, the fellow Jews, would not accept your testimony about me, me being Christ. Now, Paul even tried to reason that, you know, certainly the Jews will listen to him because of how extensive his zeal was for God. He had killed Christians. Certainly they would listen to him because he assisted in the murder of Stephen. And Paul's way of thinking, his role as persecutor of the church would give him impeccable credentials to speak to the Jews. But this all changed in one sentence. For I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Paul had touched the raw nerve of their predetermined prejudice. Now, he had hinted at it before, but here... It was plain. And remember, they were accusing him of having a Gentile in a section of the temple where Gentiles were not allowed. Now, he didn't do that, but that's what they accused him of. And here he says, hey, my job is to go to the Gentiles and help them be near to God through the gospel. They could listen to his story until he talked about including Gentiles in the plan of God. No devout Jew would believe that about Gentiles, at least at that time. And had Paul not uttered that sentence, who knows whether he could have saved his bacon or not. But the fact is, Paul would rather be a prisoner than deny the mission and turn against Christ who called him on the Damascus Road. Perhaps Paul felt this great sense of indebtedness for how the grace of God was expressed in his life. How could God love me? Some of you deal with this. How could God express his grace to me after what I've done? after the thoughts I've had, after the background that I have had, and yet that's exactly what God did. God reached down from heaven, and you talk about grabbing the heart of a human being. That's exactly what he did, supernaturally intervening in Paul's life. And he came to Christ, and he says, I want to use you. And Paul, as I mentioned before, just fell to his knees 
He realized his sin, and he realized it was either Christ or hell. It was either Christ or I'm toast. Not, I'm going to have to change my life. Not, I've got to be a part of this system. I've got to clean up my act. It was Christ. And Christ, he'll do the sanctifying. He'll do the changing. Paul was indebted. I mean, how could God call him? who killed followers of Christ. And now Christ calls him to share to the Gentiles. You know, it it would probably in Paul's mind, this seemed like a very light load to share in front of basically his enemy like this because he was saved from eternal death, Paul was. So what's the big deal? For me to live as Christ and to die as what? Gain. It's all about Christ either way. And I'm going to win no matter what. So if I'm killed here or five years later, I'm going to do what God has called me to do. It's an amazing, amazing thing to see in this man's life. But it's not any more amazing than how God has changed you, those of you who have come to Christ. But I want to stop right here, right now. Because I think there might be some here who have depended on their own efforts, on a religious system. And the question I have for you is, what are you waiting for in submitting your life to Christ and acknowledging that Christ alone is the one who can bring you salvation and forgive you of your sins? And so how about before we leave this place, you get that right? Let's bow in prayer.